0: Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. So change of pace on this week's exchange, we'll be speaking with Eric Prids, who's an artist that maybe even your parents have heard of. Over the last decade he's had global hits, a couple of Grammy nominations and headlined Madison Square Garden. But the interesting thing about Pritz is that he's always kept one foot in the techno world. He came up during the sound's first wave in Stockholm, and under his Cyrus D alias, he's continued to make music that strips away the soaring melodies that he's usually known for. It's been a particularly big year for him, with a label anniversary, an epic Fortet remix and a new album about to come out. I went to his house in Hollywood a couple of months back to better understand how he's successfully worn all of these different hats. You can find the full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. An exchange with Eric Prids is up next. I thought maybe a good place to start would be uh, talking about LA a little bit,
1: seeing yep. as we're here. When did you come to LA permanently? End of 2012, um, I kind of made up my mind when I came here during the summer. I did this uh, like a touring festival for a month and a half. You kind of played every day in a different city and, and you toured with the festival, the whole crew and all the the, the acts and everything. But I had ten days off in LA, and I've been to LA many times, but I think I've been in the wrong places with the wrong people because I never really liked it. As in, you know, because everyone says, "Oh, man, LA is amazing," and I was like, "It's all right," kind of thing. But then, during these the ten days, I I fell in love with the place, and I uh, I asked my my wife, like, we should we should move to LA, you know, it, it's a great place, and she agreed, and we did a few months later, and and. Um, I think the plan was to just stay for like half a year, a year, something like that, get a bit of a change of, um, of scenery, but um, yeah, well, I mean, I'm still here and now, we, you know, we bought a house and the, our kids go to school here now mm. and my son is even born here. So um, yeah, this is, this is the home, this is home now. So what do you
0: know now that you didn't know before? Like why does it make sense to you now?
1: L.A., it is a weird place. It's like heaven and hell in, uh, in the same place kind of thing, you know. But, you know, it's it's um, where we live, kind of, you know, it's uh, it's great for kids. There's so much stuff to do, lots of nature, really good schools. Obviously, as a Swede living in northern Scandinavia, there is the weather that's very, very different. You know, I'm, like wintertime, we're used to getting maybe three hours of daylight. But here, it's just all year round, amazing California sunlight, you know. I think, you know, it's made me a happier person since I moved here, I have to say, yeah. Uh, what about on a creative level?
0: Like how differently do you feel creatively compared to say like London or
1: Stockholm? Like, is there a different energy here, would you say? You know, I thought it would be a difference just because it's from one extreme to the other. And when when I, um when I lived in, in, in the UK or when I lived in, in Sweden, you had parts of the year when it was just grey and wet and cold and really boring outside and, and you spend your time locked in a studio kind of dreaming yourself away to a happier place almost, you know, thinking about the next Ibiza season or something like that. So I, d- I did think that it might, something would happen with my, my artistic or my creative process and stuff, but, you know, it's just the same thing. I would say I'm I'm more creative since I I moved here actually um for some strange reason you know because there's a lot of distractions here it's you know it's it's great to be outside like every day you can you, you know you can go to the beach you can hang out by the pool there's all these things that I'm not used to doing because I'm from Sweden and you know we have a month and a half of summer and the rest of it is just shit <laughs> So you maybe find that these things help to
0: like clear your headspace
1: or something. Yeah, but I think as I said, you know, I, I know at the creative process how it's always been for me. Like I said, you know, you outside is crap, you lock yourself in the studio and you dream yourself away to another place and you kind of and somehow find inspiration in that. And and but now I am in this place where I normally would be dreaming about being in, but I'm still it's not affecting my, my creative process, you know? It's almost like I'm making more music now than I ever have ever before, you know? I'm really happy with that.
0: <laughs> so 2015 uh, is kind of a big year for you in that you're celebrating 10th anniversary of uh, Pride Air Recordings. Yeah. So um, tell us about how you're marking
1: the occasion. Pride I was, you know, yeah, it's been, it's been 10 years. That's, that's fucking crazy. It's a label that I started up back when I was kind of fresh, and I, um, back then, when you released music, it was all about releasing music on other people's labels and, and bigger record companies and stuff like that. And everyone always had to have some form of input, like, oh, maybe, th- no, we don't really like the track like this, you shouldn't do that, oh, that's weird. Like we never heard anything like that before you should try and do this, and the artwork should look like that, and blah blah blah. you know you didn't really have full control, mm. which I hated, so starting up your own label for me was like the obvious thing to do because I could do whatever I wanted to musically, the way that the 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 mu you know the music and the releases were promoted uh, sold, et cetera. so I started Prida, and it's been going for ten years. I've never I haven't really treated it as a record company. Mm. It's just a forum for me, an artistic forum for me to do whatever I want musically, you know. There's not a release plan that's planned kind of in January for the whole year. I just release whatever I feel like I I put some music out, you know, and and um I don't really do any promotion. Um and it's it's only about the music kind of thing and and yeah, it's been ten years, and and we decided to um, to celebrate that with releasing an album called Pride of Ten, uh, which is you know celebrating ten years, which uh, consists of twenty two tracks. I would say ninety nine percent of these tracks are tracks that Pride fans have been gagging for for years, you know, because I. And they've never been released. So we thought it was a great way of, you know, celebrating 10 years of, of what, what, we've done, what we've done musically on the label. And obviously that, it's been going for 10 years. And then it's kind of a chapter one and then, you know, look forward for the next 10 years, you know. Mm. So why hadn't the tracks been released? I don't make music with a purpose to release it. I never have. I make the music that I feel is missing in my my record box, and I make music to play, to play out. Obviously, I do release music, but that's just when I feel, you know, hey, this track should be released, you know. But I, I never sit down and say, okay, I'm gonna make a new Pride I release, you know. It's more like, I want some new music for my sets. Let's make it, kind of thing. So, you know, if I'm going on a tour and I'm making a track a day or something, it kind of adds up. So you can't release them all, you know. Mm. And it was 22 tracks on on the Pride of 10, but that's just clearing a corner up in the attic, you know, in the the music library, (laughs) there's so much other stuff.
0: So presumably some of these tracks have a a pretty big uh, lifespan. I mean, how how far back are we talking with some of these?
1: Uh, A few of them, let me think, what tracks are on there? Quite a few from like 2005, 2006. Yeah, so it, the, you know, they're, they're all from the period, like ten this 10 year period really. Um,
0: I mean, are these tracks that you would have been like retouching over the years or did you kind of dust them off in their sort of complete form or?
1: No, I haven't touched them. Really? really. Yes, I think that it, you know, there's a time and a place and a sound for each track. And if I take something that I made in 2006, it had a certain sound like a production sound, and the way I you know worked in the studio with the sounds and stuff and if if I were to take that track and reproduce it now, it would lose its magic or sure. it, you know it would be, become something else so you know it was just a question of finding all, all, all the old arrangements and masters and you know trying to get them to sound good together you know. Mm. Um, which I'm really happy with how it turned out. And yeah, the response has been phenomenal. You know, it's. I mean, yeah, I'm really s-
0: proud of it. I was just going to say, are you someone who has quite a um, positive relationship with their uh, older music? I mean, uh, you, maybe you talk to some artists and uh, they maybe even feel not embarrassed, but, you know, it can be quite a complicated relationship if they've been making music for, for quite a while. I just wondered what your relationship was like with, with some of this older stuff. Are you proud and fond of it?
1: Yeah, because it's, it's it's a part of me, you know, and it's something I created out of nothing. And and I can understand how people w- could think that because you, you get an interest for music, you buy your first synthesizer and you make something on that and then you move on and you move on. But I think by the time I started my label in, in 2003, was it 2004? Well, the first release came out in 2005. But I, I just felt that I was done in terms of learning my craft kind of thing. So anything, f- obviously, I, I have developed since then, but it's still within that kind of... I can look at tracks then and think, God, that I really love that still kind of thing. It's not like I look back at it. Oh, why did I do that? That sounds so... Bad or amateur or, or mm-hmm. whatever or and you know it's uh
0: because you felt like you'd reached a good place in your development by then
1: yeah i just i don't know how other people work, but i always i have the tracks before I even put them down on on you know I have them in my head mm-hmm. almost and then it's a question of if you hear a sound in your head to try and create that with your 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 music equipment and and um I think at that point i'd I'd reach that. That point where I felt that I can, I can, whatever I have inside me, I can I can get into onto a CD or to a piece of vinyl or an MP3 or yeah whatever, but then if if you you know if we go back and we start to listen to music prior to that, then obviously n- never released, but yeah maybe I would be the same.
0: So you've released a fairly healthy amount of music on the label over the years and you know, you're in a position where you have up to like 22 tracks um, that were unreleased. Yeah. So this kind of paints uh, a picture of you being fairly prolific. So I was wondering, like, has this always been the case over these 10 years? You know, have you been able to produce music and have you felt inspired at a rate that's been
1: consistent, if you'd like? N- no, not at all. Th- there's periods when I'm very uninspired and I've just learned to deal with it. Like I know a lot of friends of mine, they, they see going to the studio as work. So they will be there at eight o'clock in the morning and they will leave at five and they go to work, you know, and they sit there and they make, even if they're not inspired, they sit there and try and make something anyway. But for me, it's like, what's, it's not work. It's a creative process. It's like, it's not like moving boxes from one corner to the other. So the way I do it is if I'm in the mood, I'm in the mood and I'll go and make some music. Otherwise, I, I do something else, you know, and I, it, it's been working for me, you know. It's, um, I don't think you should force it, like you shouldn't go into a studio or into a creative environment and then even feeling uninspired and uncreative and try to make something anyway, just for the sake of making something. It doesn't make any sense to mm-hmm.
0: me. I yeah. mean, would you do things to try and cultivate that sort of headspace or is it more a case of like it comes naturally and then you know it's just a feeling and you act upon it exactly
1: whenever it comes you just act on it and I think touring has always been very inspiring to me you know doing shows meeting new people uh, playing music for people you know all across the world and and, you know the, the energy and feedback you get from them gets you very inspired to go back into the studio and 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 make more music, you know? And then, so it kind of, the whole touring versus being in the studio um, in that creative place, they kind of go hand in hand, I think, feed each other sort of thing.
0: And um, obviously a big part of, you know, the volume of your output has been the fact that you have these three, like, very prominent aliases. Maybe talk us through that decision, you know, when was it and why was it that you decided to, to set up these, like, discrete
1: projects? I mean, the, the names that I've been been releasing the most music under is well, Eric Pritz, and then it's Prida, and it's uh, Cyrus D. And Cyrus D is kind of, it's similar to Prida in terms of its artist is, the you know, the artist is Prida, the label is Prida, Prida releases music on Prida, and it's, it has its own little thing going on there. And the Cyrus D alias is releasing music on another label of mine called Mouseville, and you know labels were both both set up in the same kind of era i think Mouseville was like 2004 even in 2005 and i mean musically the labels are different pride has always been it's it's very melodic and and more experimental and kind of uh, i can just do whatever i want it doesn't necessarily have to be made for a club it could be um you know it's should I say progressive? I don't know. Whilst the music on Mouseville has been a much more harder-edged and very cl- club-orientated, um, very stripped-down, kind of influenced by European techno. And and, and, and I, I remember why, I actually do remember why I set up Mouseville now. It was, um, the first release I did on Mouseville was a track called uh, Control Freak. And it was to, uh, supposed to go out on Thomas Crome's Corp label. I can't really remember what happened. Well, he was very messy back then. Uh, we just felt that it just went kind of on and on and on, and it, nothing really happened. So then after a while, I just said, you know what? I'm just going to set up my own label and, and release this track. Because it, it was a track that didn't fit on Prida musically. So I said, you know, I, I like making this music. I should have an output for that as well. And yeah. And
0: how about the um, stuff under your own name? How do you sort of box that in your, in your mind?
1: I think that the Eric Pritt stuff, I signed, like, with Eric Pritt's name, the, I think I, I signed my first record deal in, like, 2000, and that was with uh, Parlophone in the UK. They had a, a dance label called Regal, Regal Recordings, and they signed... Um, me, Eric Pritz and the name and I, I did one or two releases there I think and then I jumped over to another EMI label which was the flagship one called uh, Credence mm-hmm. and I did three EPs there uh, under the name Eric Pritz and I mean if you listen to those EPs that, that's like Prida music you know it's the same thing. Then I signed to another record company in the UK and they, like I said, they sign you and they, they own your name for the period of the contract. So you can't do anything Eric Pritz anywhere else. And they only wanted big records. So they would just wait until that big record came and they will take that. And that's the Eric Pritz one. I see. So the Eric Pritz has always been the more commercially viable music that comes out of, comes out from me, you know? Um, so it, it wasn't a choice of mine, but it, it just ended up that way, yeah.
0: And I guess using all these different aliases, it's kind of fueled this idea that people have of you as someone who is able to like straddle many different scenes and many different like levels of of the dance music scene. The latest example of this, I guess, is the fact that Fortet has been working on some of your music. I wonder if you could uh, tell
1: us about that and kind of how it came about. Yeah, the track you're talking about is a, a, a fairly new track that I made. That's called Opus. And he tweeted, like, I can't remember word for word, but like, he really liked the track and that he would love to make a remix out of it. And we said, you know, that's pretty cool. Actually, we should, you know, we should look into that. We we're really interested to see what would come out of that, you know, and. Um, so he, he's remixed it and and it's um, he's been playing it out as well and you know it, it's a banger you know and and I'm really excited to um, that it's gonna see the light of day yeah.
0: I was just looking at some of the names of uh, people you've been playing with. Over the last couple of years, there was like a hot flush party in Miami, people like Scuba and George Fitzgerald, Adam Bayer. you've had like Sasha and Maceo Plex, Claude Von Stroke coming through, the pride of showcases. So what I wanted to ask is for these gigs, are you kind of approaching them differently? Do you feel differently when you're playing them? Like, do you get a different sense of satisfaction out of them? I mean, how does it compare to, you know, the, these bigger shows that you're playing? Are you talking about the, these kind of shows? Yes, yeah, these, you know, with with guys like, you know, Scuba, for example, like, are you, are you taking a different sense of satisfaction from them? And, you know, do you prepare differently, say?
1: I, I mean, playing more intimate shows versus playing big festivals and stuff is obviously, it's a very different kind of, of, of gig, you know? For me, I pre- I prefer playing clubs, you know, and and you know if I had to choose, that's where I feel that me and my music comes across the best, you know, it works well. Not ninety-minute slot, I, but you know I have to adjust then, and I'll 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 do a different kind of thing. But um, obviously, when I do these, you, you know, like the Pride arenas and stuff like that, and I I invite these people, these are people that I. Me and my music taste, and for what I like, I, I get, to, I just, you know, I i can pick kind of thing, which I want, you know, obviously we have to ask them if they want to play, you know, but it's not someone else who picks these names. It's people that I really look up to and that I think musically will fit w- very well together. And yeah, we had, like, some, as you said, for the Creamfields, the Pride Arena Creamfields, a few of those names that you said, like Massio Plex and, and Sasha and Claude from Stroke and, and, you bring all those people together in one arena for one night, that's one hell of a party, you know, which is great. So I'm kind of there as a fan and I'm there as, as a performer as well. And, and, yeah.
0: This sense of, you know, going in multiple directions at once and kind of, exploring different things simultaneously where does this stem from I mean if you look at your development and your history has this kind of always been the case for you have you always been interested in uh, you know simultaneously pursuing different
1: things it, it's just the way it's been it's turned out you know I I love so many kinds of different styles of music and and I could never you know if I had this one little line that I had to stay, you know, stay a like, little path I had to stay on. Music style-wise, throughout my career, I couldn't do that. That would be so boring. You know, I like everything from very, very minimal techno to Mozart, or even like Def Leppard, or Kiss, or Depeche Mode, or Knitsereb, or Frontline Assembly, uh, anything from the 80s. I love Alphaville, et cetera, et cetera, you know. Um, I make different kinds of music depending on the mood I am in, you know.
0: There's a line in your biography that simply says you began making music aged nine. Yeah. Uh, It doesn't really expand upon it, so I wondered if you could expand upon that.
1: Yeah, no. well, I, I think it was early. I think it was about seven, when I was maybe six or seven. Growing up in Sweden in the 70s and 80s, everything was very... Like the government would put a lot of money into um the infrastructure for kids to make sure like they had you know stuff to do so if you after school you could go to these places and they had all the toys and all the like music instruments and pianos and drums and et cetera et cetera so I got into i had them there you know for me to use whenever I wanted as a kid, and it's just something that i I started using and I think i you know, I wrote my first track when I was about eight years old, I think, on on a, on a piano in school, and and it kind of, you know, escalated from there, I guess.
0: I mean, were you uh, receiving music training as a
1: as a young kid? Well, actually, I did. My mom sent me to this piano practice because, you know, my parents could see that it was an interest to me, and I I could play the piano, etc. But it was just the most ridiculous thing I've ever. I just went once, because of all these stupid rules. Oh, you you have to, the pinky finger needs to go there. And do, I, I'm like, no, I'm, I'll do it like this. And and you have to play all these really boring tracks and stuff. And uh, yeah, I went Doing once. So. And, yeah, yeah, so I, I'm not musically trained. Like, I I don't, I can't read notes or anything like that. I don't think, like, I think it's wrong in a way that you should it depends on what you want to use your skills for if you as a creative person want to create something then i don't see why you should go and study what all these other people have done before you that's like irrelevant it's it's, it's more interesting what you can do and these are the instruments and and you know try and learn how to play them and do it in your own way in your own style and, and yeah
0: something more free form
1: yeah 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 definitely
0: and do you remember when the idea of like
1: club culture came onto your radar? Okay, club culture. I mean, I think elect- like the electronic side of music came with mid-80s in Sweden, where the whole breakdance phenomenon blew up and was the coolest thing ever. And it came with all this cool electronically made music as well, which kind of opened up my, my ears and eyes to you know, bands like Kraftwerk and... and and Pash mode and obviously all the breakdown stuff and all like Italo disco and and everything that was going on there. But in terms of clubbing, I think it must have been, I think it was much later. Like I did DJ in in school. The school, like every other week, they would have like a Friday night kind of, you go there and you drink Coca-Cola and eat chips and, and listen to music, you know, as a... 13 year old kid sort of thing and I used to DJ at those things with a few friends of mine so I think that's where the whole DJing thing started out but then it was like hip-hop and R&B and I think I was about 13, 13 years old or something like that but in terms of you know proper clubbing I would say maybe much later like 1997-98 around there when I, I started playing in in small clubs in Stockholm, and and uh, yeah, I mean the music scene in Stockholm in in the late 90s was like crazy, crazy, like really blooming. You know, we had on, on the techno side of things, we had the Joel Mols and the Adam Bayers and the Jesper Dahlbeck and Ariel Bricker and and uh, yeah, Thomas Chrome and and you had. Kari Lakebush so these are these people have been very very influential on me because that was my my first contact with techno i was never into the stuff that came out of detroit or chicago when it first happened that kind of yeah no i was never exposed to it like the music i was hearing was more the synth pop and the body music and and synth and all, and all that but then I think I I kind of rediscovered it after listening to the Swedish techno guys who obviously were very inspired. By what was going on in Detroit and techno uh, Detroit and Chicago, sorry, but uh, they made their own version out of it. And when I heard that, I was like, wow, this just blew my mind, kind of thing. So I've been very inspired by them. They're all friends of mine now, you know, and I I still look up to them very much, and and you know, they are my my heroes in a way. Um, yeah,
0: I was just going to ask if there were like particular spots that you guys would kind of, you know, hang. Was there like a club or clubs that were like the focus point?
1: There was a lot of places in Stockholm, um, like, you know, all, all the the Swedish names that I just told you, they, they were playing frequently in, in Stockholm. That was like the techno scene. And then you have a big drum and bass scene and you had a big... Um, you had the whole rave thing going out, out in the Docklands, in uh, in the Stockholm Harbour or whatever. It doesn't exist there anymore. But um, there was a lot to choose from when it comes to uh, electronic dance music back then. And I just... I was a mushroom back then. I just went to all these places and as a clubber, punter kind of thing, you know. And, and um, yeah, it was very inspiring, I have to say.
0: Mm. And to talk about your own music and your early music... I think you're someone who's maybe known as you know, having a very particular style, even if it's maybe not so easy to describe. But I wanted to ask if you kind of see particular like trademarks or hallmarks that, um, you know, if you could trace a line from your early music right up to now. Are there like elements of music that have always excited you or you've always kind of gone towards?
1: Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's kind of hard to analyze yourself, but I think that kind of red line that people see and they can say, oh, this is an Eric record. I think it's the melodies and harmonies and and the kind of chords that I like to work with that has that kind of melancholy, sad, but kind of a little bit of hope. And I don't know how to explain it. This is stuff that I, you know, that I in my turn have, have gotten from all these uh, the synth bands from 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 the eighties and nineties, you know, mixing that kind of sour sweet in a way. It's hard, but it has a soft kind of sad.
0: Yeah, because I guess if you listen to one of your melodies in isolation or to play them, this is something that like would uh, remind you of Kraftwerk or something.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, maybe it's. Um, I think that might be one thing that. Melody-wise, I have certain a certain vibe that I always find myself attracted to when I make music that most of the music go to. Then, obviously, there's the odd track that's totally different and, you know, doesn't do that at all. But mm. but
0: this has been a kind of recurring thing.
1: Yeah, I think it has. You know, if I, if I listen through, you know, especially when I went through all these tracks to choose which one were to go on the Pride of Ten album, I could definitely see... You know, when you listen to that much, I mean, I must have listened to like 100 tracks or something like that before choosing the 22 of them. And I could hear like, you know, I go for that kind of thing almost every time, always in a different way or from a different angle. But it, a lot of the music I make, it's perfect kind of driving car music, if you know what I mean. Just driving Mulholland Highway or Mulholland Drive or whatever and just or like the the Autobahn in... in uh, in Germany or whatever, it just makes you want to go faster and you go it, it takes you somewhere, you know. Mm. It, that kind of thing. A lot of the music I make have that effect, I think. It could be because I've spent most of my time touring on trains throughout Europe, you know, for the past 10 years, and and you know, because I I prefer not to fly, so I rather do trains, but then you have this view, this scenery just going past you all the time. You drive through the Swiss Alps or the, the drive through uh, the countryside of Italy or, or um, you know, whatever, like the English countryside or whatever. And you have this, you know, and I think it affects, it affects the music you write. You have it there and you write the music at the same time. So, yeah.
0: And, um, you know, yours is certainly a style that has been influential and, you know, people have looked to imitate over the years. Does that kind of thing bother you? Like, How do you feel when you would listen to a piece of music and think, "Ah, oh, that's very similar
1: to, to me? I mean, on one side, I, I feel kind of honoured in a way and a little bit, um, I must have done something right because these people love it so much. They want to try and make their own version out of it. Like the way I see it, like make, making music is that like you're telling a story. Whatever music you write... If it's rock music, if it's classical music, dance music, whatever, it's it's you expressing yourself as an artist. It could be music. You could be a writer. You could be a designer. You you are doing something. You are, you know, you are telling your own story. I don't understand why someone else would be basing their career on telling someone else's story all the time. If someone likes. Eric Pritz, Why should they go and listen to someone else when they can go and listen to that music being made in a better way by the guy who actually makes it? You know, so I don't really understand like people who, who, um, well, I kind of under, maybe you know it depends on where you are. Are you like, are you doing this as a professionally? Are you do you see yourself as a as an artist or do you see yourself as a kid? who likes to play around with cubase at home in your bedroom and you you know you have like oh yeah, i like this guy i like and I like that guy i love his music i want to try and make that and that's what he does like he makes music to try and sound like his heroes and that's another thing like you can't tell a kid like that oh man you know you're ripping off that sounds like adam Bayer's new new single or the the new Tiesto banger or whatever, you know, that doesn't matter, that's fine, you know. People imitate, but if you come up to a certain level when you are a professional and you release music and you just take someone else's ideas and, and write your own name on it, then I don't know. I try not to think about it, it happens all the time, it, it's been going on ever since I released my first record. and instead of being bitter about it and think, oh, they stole whatever I came up with, this idea or that, just move on. Mm, You'll always be one step ahead of them anyway because you will always be the one setting the standard and the trends for followers like that. So maybe it will even push you, you know, to kind of be better and to move on. Okay, I've made that. I made that thing. Someone copied it. Let's move on to the next thing.
0: And I guess also um, a big... Part of your artistic identity, certainly in the last few years, has been the um, EPIC live shows. You know, some of your like flagship presentations, if you like. Tell us about how the concept came about.
1: The concept of the EPIC shows was basically me and my team wanting to do something bigger scaled. But at the time, what everyone was doing was the big LED wall, the confetti, the CO2 cannons, the microphone, you know, and I just felt that I was so boring and so... It's very effective, don't get me wrong. Like, people still use it and it's mega effective. Fireworks, whatever, music, you don't even have to have music, you can just have the confetti and the <laughs> and the explosions and and, and scream in a mic, and that's amazing, you know, and there's a market for that. And, you know great but i just felt that we wanted to do something that was enhancing the music rather than taking over and overshadowing it so that's basically what we did you know we i think it was in planning for about a year and a half and then epic which is eric britts in concert kind of thing that was the product of that and and it's been an evol- evolving thing like every show has been different in terms of you do one show and then we, you go back to the drawing board and like, how can we make this better? That really worked. Let's enhance that somehow. And I've seen this new cool technology. Maybe we can include this in the next show. And you know, it's been a like a playground for a lot of creative people from, you know, me from the music side and, and like Liam, who is um, like the mastermind behind all the, all the graphics and the holograms and, and, and all that. You know he he can you know he's super creative and comes up with new things and and yeah it's just a really fun fun thing that we can do every now and then it's super expensive i lose money every time i do it but it doesn't really matter you know it's not it's yeah. more about having fun and and yeah
0: i was going to say because there must be um you know when you're messing with things like uh, 3D animation and you know productions of that size, it must be like such a big
1: team and so many yeah. things
0: to think about kind of thing.
1: It is, it's very stressful and it's very, you know, like when, you know, like we, we went into Madison Square Garden and, and, and did Epic there, nothing was pre-programmed. Everyone was improvising. Like the crew didn't even know what I was gonna play. I didn't know what, what I was what gonna play. I knew what I was, like the opening track, the rest of it was just, yeah. But the way we've set up with Epic is it actually kind of works better that way because everyone is so in tune with the music. They know the tracks inside out, every little sound, everything, you know, and everyone who's doing each element is so good at that specific element. So it's kind of like we, we go out there, and we jam, you know. And as a ticket buyer or someone who wants to come and see a show, it's amazing, because you know, what, what you saw for the past three hours, two hours, is, is never going to happen again, you know? that was unique. So if you do, I think the, the year before Madison Square Garden, we did the Hammerstein in New York, and we did two nights in a row. And obviously the, sh- the shows were totally different, you know? which I think is really cool. You know?
0: I mean, what's it like as a performer to be up there by yourself
1: playing Madison Square Garden? I was shitting myself. (laughs) I didn't enjoy it as much as I maybe I should have, just because of, in the back of my head, I knew how many elements of this show that could go so wrong. Yeah, I see. Yeah, what if I don't perform? What if I fuck something up? What if, whatever. You know, we had this, and the holograms we were using was was this new technology, that we had loads of problems with. It's like the biggest hologram in America ever. It was a lot of things that could go wrong. But as soon as you get up there and you start, you get into your zone. And then afterwards it was I needed a few days to kind of reflect because it, it it had the build-up and the preparations for the show had been very, very intense. And it would have been nice to just have everything preset and just go up and and you know, press a button, turn a few knobs, and enjoy yourself. But I, when I was up there, I was kind of, it was work, like proper, like I had to, yeah. But it turned out amazingly, you know, and and, yeah.
0: You mentioned there this idea of the pre-programmed shows and the confetti cannons and all of these things. And, you know, obviously this has been a, incredibly popular form of entertainment and you know it's yeah. been an enormous thing in, in the States yeah as somebody who's playing uh, shows at this level do you see this continuing you know if you're thinking about America in particular like can you see this still being a thing on this scale in like five years or do you think it may be D- are you talking
1: about the
0: just like the big big scale festival shows you know this EDM explosion,
1: <laughs> this whole thing that's been going on in the States like I think it will hang around longer than you think. You look on online and you have people, oh, he's pressing play, he's not mixing the records, he's doing this and that, he's all, you know. Don't listen to it then. Go and listen to something else. There's obviously a market for throwing cakes and... and, and all these different things you know that's fine like if you don't like it you don't have to watch it you don't have to go and see that you can go and and see what you like you know i think actually i think it's great that you have that whole thing because it makes the people who does it differently you know you have that kind of contrast in between which gives everyone like an identity and 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 uh but, yeah, to answer your question, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hang around because you're going to have 16-, and 17-, and 18-year-old kids that are getting into, that goes to the first festival. Or, like, you need to have the McDonald's of music for people to come in into the scene to start with. Like, when I was a kid, I loved McDonald's, you know? I had my fair share of McDonald's. I got bored of it. I started looking for maybe something a bit more refined etc cetera, etc cetera. and the same thing it's the same thing with music you know you need all that shenanigans to happen to bring people in you know in the scene and then when they start to get their own music taste and start to develop you know in in, in what they like and and, and so they will move on from that to the next thing and to the next thing you know getting more and more refined and
0: yeah so at this point, I mean, you've, you've kind of scored number one records, um, you've had Grammy nominations, you know, you've, you've toured the globe many, many times. So I wondered, uh, you know, in 2015, what does success look like or feel like for you? Like, how do you measure success at this point?
1: Success for me is being able to make music and play music for a living. That's fucking amazing. Like that, I mean, I'm very fortunate that I can make money off doing my hobby, you know? If I couldn't do that, I would I would probably still do it and work at Tesco's or, you know, whatever. I like cooking. I might be a chef or something, but uh, that is success for me. Like I never set up goals. Like I want to be top 10 on the, some magazines, top 100 DJ rating, or, or I want to have, I want to sell 10 million records, I, it, it's, you know, success. I think you so should be happy and, and, and being able to do what you love, you know, and that's what I'm doing right now. And I, I, to me, that's very successful, you know, in terms of selling records, I'm no Calvin Harris, you know, I don't really want want to like my, the music I make is not really, I don't make it for that kind of, it's not really you know i i make the i make music that i want to play out and every now and then there's a record that that connects with that kind of itunes top 10 kind of thing but most of it it's made for 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 clubs and and dance floors and but yeah success to me just being able to do what you love you know